The Land of the Unsolved is sponsored by Spot Crime, the number one crime mapping site in the country. Make sure to visit spotcrime.com to track crime in your neighborhood because safety begins with knowing. Anyone who watches crime dramas could reasonably conclude that when someone is murdered, barring bizarre and extenuating circumstances, the case is solved. That is, through high-tech forensics, moral resolve, or simply the near-mythic competence of American law enforcement, killers are ultimately sent to jail. But as an investigative reporter who has worked in one of the most violent cities in the country for nearly 15 years, I can tell you, this is not true. And that is the point of this podcast, because unsolved killings represent more than just statistics. It's a psychic toll of stories untold that infects an entire community. The final violent moments of a victim's life that remain shrouded in mystery. I'm Stephen Janis. I'm Taya Graham. And we are investigative reporters who live in Baltimore City. Welcome to the land of the unsolved. You know, people are like, why are you doing this? It's killing you. It's not going to bring her back. But then I just, I say, well, how, how could I not do it? She shot in the back. And the killer or killers still on the loose. Something that happens on TV, it doesn't happen to us or our friends. I, I internalized that last discussion we had. She puts the window down and there's a conversation and she's shut. Uh, things don't really work that way. Welcome back to The Land of the Unsolved, the podcast that explores both the mystery and the politics of unsolved murder cases. In our last episode, we told you about the life and mysterious death of Jodie Le Cornu. How she was shot through the back of her car in a deserted Baltimore County parking lot. And how a mysterious man, described as an African-American male, followed her car across the street to a nearby grocery store, stopped his white BMW, and removed something from her dashboard. And then calmly... He drove away. What he took from her car remains a mystery. But the toll he exacted by ending her life was incalculable. One of the people who suffered was her boyfriend at the time, Steve. Early that morning, Baltimore County police showed up at his door. Knock on the door, about a forceful knock on the door about, about 7 o'clock. And the manner in which that knock occurred, um, it wasn't a neighbor. So I look outside and I saw a car and I think, well, that looks like the police. Walked down, opened the doors, two detectives, and they said there had been an accident up on the Caldor lot and that Jody had, had, had died. Maybe 15 minutes later, I said, well, what did she hit? I figured she'd had a drunk driving accident. What did she hit on the Caldor lot? Uh, a lamp, a, a lamppost? And uh, that's when they said, no, somebody shot her. And in that moment, his life was changed forever. But even more devastating was the pain of her twin sister, Jennifer. You, you just don't even know how to understand something like that. You know what I mean? You just, so you just immediately, I mean, I was just numb. You know, you're just kind of like a robot through life for a long time. You know, you just, you can't, you can't, um, it's like you can't handle that. Her late father was a prosecutor in the Anne Arundel State's Attorney's Office. And at least in the beginning, 
Jennifer let him handle the police. I got flew right home. Flew, I mean, just got on like the next plane and and flew right home. And I mean, like it's all like a big blur. Um, and and my dad was a prosecutor for Anne Arundel County for drug and violent crime. So he was basically the one that talked with the police. Um, when there was updates or, or things going on and, and was very um, involved with that. And I was just, I didn't, I wasn't, I mean, I was just basically like trying to figure out how to live. <laughs> like, I mean, my dad was like very strong and um, I, I, it's just like, I couldn't even like comprehend that aspect of it. The You know what I mean? Like the investigation and all that stuff. But over time, there was little progress. And it was as time got went on, as I got stronger, and um, you know he got sick with cancer, and um, he um, so I ended up like taking like taking care of him for a couple years, and um, he was going through different chemo treatments, and and he and I were very close. In fact, it seemed like police were simply ignoring the investigation. But then something changed. Her father passed away, and suddenly the future of Jody's case was up to her. And, and it was after um, that he passed away that I, you know, started to just really, you know, be able to handle, like, the investigation part of it and just really, um, like, I just couldn't accept anymore that, that the person was still out there. So she made a momentous decision. A commitment to the case that would change her life. It was it was a in the last couple you know a couple years ago where I just um, you know I started to you know on the anniversary because I know there's so many news stories there's so many tragic sad stories but I I just tried everything I could to try to just keep her story alive so you know on the anniversary I'd reach out um, to the news stations and just try to you know please put something out there and um, so it was and and so I did that. One of those reporters, Fox 45's Keith Daniels, agreed to come in and discuss Jody's murder. For some time, um, we were doing frequently what we called uh, cold cases. And we would take a particular story. Um, and wait, that's how I think we, we, we packaged it as a cold case story. And this particular case, as you know, it's it's it has all the... I guess raw elements of emotion. Twin sisters. Um, she's, according to police, seen on a parking lot at three o'clock in the morning. She's shot in the back, and the killer or killers still on the loose. So it had all the ingredients of a story that could possibly get people to pay attention and. With that, hopefully, the tip that police need to uh, solve the case. Well, the last time I did a story on this was uh, in May uh, 2016. That's when police um, released for the first time publicly the crime scene photos in an effort to try to trigger people's memories uh, in this case. And... Part of the information that they released were grainy pictures of Jody's car. And then they released uh, an image 
of a white BMW that they say was similar to the suspect's um, vehicle. That was part of the most interesting part of the story for me to actually see the victim's car where she was sitting and the bullet hole in the back where they say that bullet traveled and hit her in the back. It was interesting seeing a crime scene more than 20 years old, pictures of the victim's car, and it's still unsolved. I work with Keith at Fox 45, and he is an impeccable reporter. And when we started talking, he said something that struck me, not just about the evidence, but about the investigation. Politics is involved in everything, first of all, let me just say that. But in terms of when you're investigating a murder, and we're talking about the Baltimore County Police, first of all, all police departments, I think, do great jobs. But the Baltimore County Police, if you remember, their record of solving murders it's pretty 100% for the most part. Uh, when, when a murder happens in Baltimore County, they're going to solve it. Th- that murder is solved, typically. Their clearance rate is one of the best in the area for Baltimore County Police. So when a case goes unsolved in Baltimore County, I'm sure it frustrates the heck out of them, like, like it does the families involved. A truism about the Baltimore County Homicide Division that says much about Jody's murder. And that assessment is borne out by the numbers. Baltimore County has an impressively high clearance rate. Which made me think about what Keith said in light of Jody's case. Because there was plenty of compelling evidence. Well, they have, um, you know, the, having the witnesses and the fingerprints and um, there's... Um, you know, the description and of the, the black male and the white BMW and the, um, you know, they've taken some video. The giant cameras were down that night, but which is unfortunate because that would have been, which is crazy. And um, But the, the video VHS tapes that they have are unclear. And that's what Jennifer thought. Why wasn't this case solved? A question that loomed in her mind as months turned into years, and years turned into decades. Um, but it, it was in the last couple of years that I just, I, I was like, I can't, I can't take this anymore. I just, I, I don't, I don't want to not know what happened, and I want to find this person. And, and, and it's been an amazing experience, but also an incredible amount of stress. One of the people she enlisted was former Baltimore homicide detective Stephen Tabling. Well, I got involved. They, uh, Jody read my book and asked if, uh, if I could talk to him, if they thought maybe I might be able to do anything. So I did. I, I talked to him and I listened uh, to what they had to say. And it didn't take him long to come up with fresh leads. Well, uh, um, her being on a lot... At that time of the morning and putting the window down on her car for to talk to someone that's highly unusual, unless it's a pre, a, a, a time had been set for her to meet somebody. Uh, and like I say, uh, th- there's a lot of information that I have. I haven't been able to corroborate it because we weren't able to get the files from the police. And because it's an ongoing investigation, as a private investigator, I didn't want to go over top of anything that the police might have been doing. So we were, excuse me, we were trying to get the files and we couldn't get them. Tabling said he was struck by the unusual circumstances surrounding her death. What seemed to him to be an execution-style slaying. 
And and the other kind of story I got was that she was at the Mount Washington Tavern, and there was a person that lived over in that neighborhood. It was early in the morning, and she was going to take him home over in that neighborhood. And that's that's the way she got to that neighborhood. To me, it's highly suspicious. And Keith Daniel, too, had theories based upon the evidence. It wasn't good, the circumstances that led up to it. And sometimes that's difficult to accept when you when you love someone and you're close to someone. Police have said, again, I have to repeat this, they're not sure why she was in that parking lot. And for me, that particular statement that police made, we're not sure why she was in this parking lot that early in the morning. They added that part, that early in the morning. For me, that resonated as a reporter when police said that particular statement because they brought attention to the place and the time. And then the big question, why? There were six videos, but only one had been released. And throughout his reporting, one question kept coming back to him, why? And so when, when, you, when you hear of a circumstance that has a place of obscurity and then a, a time that's early in the morning, overnight, what, what's conjured up in your, in your mind? Something clandestine, perhaps, obviously, because it resulted in a shooting. Why Jody was there, we don't know. But we can suspect why. What purpose or motive prompted Jody to park in a deserted lot at 3 a.m.? She had to know she had to know he was there. Or why else would she pull up on that parking lot? If she's taking this guy home, he doesn't live in, in, the, in the castle building, I think that's where it was. If she's taking this guy home, and there's no reason for her to be on that parking lot at that time in the morning to put her window down to a man and to talk to him, it, it just doesn't happen. <laughs> and for tabling, most important, what evidence is hidden? Meaning, what do the police know, and why are they keeping it secret? The most troubling question about a case that has remained unsolved for decades. Why had nothing, not a single lead, materialized? And what were police doing? And more importantly for Jody's sister, Jennifer, what had been happening over the past two decades? A question that prompted her to take yet another step in the quest to find the killer of her sister. A decision that showed just how serious Jennifer was about finding out who killed Jody Lecornu. All that coming up after the break on The Land of the Unsolved. Remember to visit the website for our sponsor, America's number one crime mapping company. Go to spotcrime.com. Type in your address, and the Spot Crime Mapping Service will give you the latest info regarding crime in your neighborhood or anywhere else, for that matter. The best part, it's free. So be sure to check out SpotCrime.com, because safety begins with knowing. If you want to read more about unsolved murder in Baltimore and beyond, Stephen and I have written three books about the subject, all available through Amazon.com. Why Do We Kill? The Pathology of Murder in Baltimore, You Can't Stop Murder, Truths About Policing in Baltimore and Beyond, and The Book of Cop, A Testament to Policing That Works.
before we continue with Jody's case, I wanted to give listeners a little primer on how difficult it is for anyone to get information about unsolved murders. As reporters working in Baltimore, Stephen and I often encounter cases like Jody's, where the investigation seems like it's reached a dead end, or even worse, stuck in legal limbo. But victims and their families have few rights when it comes to a case that is still open. As long as investigators classify the case unsolved, according to the state's public information law, they can keep it hidden from everyone indefinitely. It's a blanket classification that has been applied to dozens of cases I've investigated. And the worst part is there is no way to know if the police are actively working the case or simply allowing it to collect dust. Which is a huge problem from the perspective of a reporter. Because I've learned that that type of power without accountability rarely works well for the public or the government which purports to serve us. Instead, it gives the police total control and leaves the families in the dark. Since we've both written books with former homicide detectives, we understand that an investigation often contains sensitive information that can be made public until the case is charged. But there are cases like Jody Lecourneau's that reveal the darker side of that coin, that sometimes it makes sense for police to share everything they have when a case goes cold. Which is exactly what Jennifer believed when she did something that few families do. She sued the police department for more information. It's not something that I wanted. I didn't want it to come to that. I mean, I, I, I hated that it got so, you know, I didn't want to have this... But I'm going to say this lawsuit against the police. I didn't. I didn't want to do all that. I just. The bottom line is, I just want um, her case to be solved. And and I just like I know. Like I said, I know there's a lot of cases and there's a lot of things that need to be worked on and everything. But for me, you know, it's my sister, and then I know them. They have lots of other cases. But I just felt like if if I could be active and and help and and um, whatever I could do to keep keep you know. According to court documents filed by her lawyer, Jennifer made the following arguments. In over 20 years, the plaintiff has not rested in the attempt to discover why someone killed Jody LeCourneau. The plaintiff's father died without knowing the answer. Her mother, who carried her and her sister and brought them into the world, continues to grieve not knowing. The plaintiff's older sister similarly cannot assuage her grief because she does not know. Despite the passage of more than two decades, despite releasing information to various media outlets and others, despite the fact that the crime scene photographs bordering on the grizzly appeared in marginally tabloid magazine for the perusal, if not titillation, of the general public, the defendant apparently denies the plaintiff's request on the basis of an alleged ongoing investigation. With respect to the plaintiff's request, the defendant apparently takes the position that the records should be opaque not transparent. The defendant's refusal is contradictory, disingenuous, and legally fallacious. We called and emailed Baltimore County Police to ask them for comment and an interview, but they declined. For Jennifer, the decision to sue the department was tied to just how puzzling the case is and how unusual it is that's not solved. I feel like maybe it was somebody maybe that was, I, I, I don't think it was drug related and I'm not ashamed to find out if it was. I know there's so many people that are like, oh, drug, you know, I hope that it's not. I, I mean, because I, like I said, I don't think she was doing drugs, but I know that's, you know, what a lot of people go to their head when, when they hear the facts about the case that it was a drug related. Um, I almost wonder if it was somebody that was 
trying to get at her, like, to... I don't want to say, like, rape, but, like, maybe it was that type of thing. Maybe somebody trying to attack her. I, that's something that I think about, like, because I can't think of what else. And, and, and if it was... And then I go back to the random theory, and then I think if it was random, why would just somebody just come up and shoot her for no reason? Um... You know, and I've had so many theories people tell me, I mean, so many different people, like, it sounds like a hit on her, you know, because she was shot from behind and um, different, all sorts of different wild theories. And the same holds true for Keith Daniels and Stephen Tabling. Both believe the evidence should have led somewhere, that there is more to the case than what police are willing to admit. When you care about someone and something terrible happens to them, you love them enough to try to find out why it happened. That is Jenny's mission. So for her to file a lawsuit to try to get that filed, I'm not surprised by that. You and I would probably do the same thing. Um, but when, when there is an open investigation, the easy thing for the police to say, well, we can't release the files to you because it's still an open investigation. So I'm not surprised that the family did not uh, get the file for that reason, nor am I surprised that they filed the lawsuit to try to get it. No, I, you know, I have a a lot of suspicions about this case, and uh, I've I've had them for a long time, but I I feel handcuffed because I I think there's information out there, and in my opinion, can it be solved? I think it can, but we've got to have the full cooperation. Oh, sure, absolutely. But, you know, there's people that I don't know if they've even been talked to. I think it can be solved, but it's got to be, you have to get the right cooperation and the right information. Police refused to release the case file and fought them tooth and nail. Which raises the question, after 22 years, what are they hiding? And why, after all these years, would they be unwilling to share with the family? A mystery that only deepened when the county responded to her suit. What they said stunned her that the files would remain off-limits indefinitely. That even after over two decades and the suffering of her family, county officials wouldn't budge. It was a stunning blow for Jennifer, her hopes quashed by a department that is sworn to protect and serve. But she didn't give up and refuses to. You know, people are like, why are you doing this? It's killing you. It's not going to bring her back. But then I just... I say, well, how, how could I not do it? Do you know what I mean? How can I just go on with my life? And, I mean, how could I not find this person? You know what I mean? It's So I, I want to find the person, and as long as I don't run out of, like, avenues to try to keep her, you know, keep her story going, you know, it, it gets hard, like I said, because there's so many different things out there. I'm getting, I'm going to do a billboard for her. I think I told you guys. I think that that's a, be in October. And she has supporters, including Stephen Tabling, who has donated his time to solve the case. And journalists like Daniels, who continue to report on the story. You can feel it yourself when you're sitting across, I mean, I, when I would interview Jenny, and, 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 and my conversations with Jenny didn't stop when the camera was turned off. I mean, we would actually talk on occasion. She would call or text or or whatever. And when you're looking in their eyes and you see what they're feeling, it's hard for you not to feel it. In fact, Jennifer is clear. She will not give up. I want them to arrest somebody. 
arrest the person. You know, I want them to find the person. A commitment she is adamant will never waver as she continues her quest to answer the question, who killed Jody LeCourneau? Thank you for joining us for The Land of the Unsolved, Episode 3, Who Killed Jody LeCourneau? If you like our work, consider supporting this podcast by clicking on the support button on our Anchor.com podcast page. Remember to visit the website for our sponsor, America's number one crime mapping company. Go to spotcrime.com. Type in your address, and the Spot Crime Mapping Service will give you the latest info regarding crime in your neighborhood or anywhere else for that matter. The best part, it's free. So be sure to check out spotcrime.com because safety begins with knowing. The Land of the Unsolved was written and produced by Stephen Janis and Taya Graham for Ace Spectrum Productions. If you want to read more about unsolved murder in Baltimore and beyond, Stephen and I have written three books about the subject, all available through Amazon.com. Why Do We Kill? The Pathology of Murder in Baltimore, You Can't Stop Murder, Truths About Policing in Baltimore and Beyond, and The Book of Cop, A Testament to Policing That Works. My name is Taya Graham. And I'm Stephen Janis. Thank you for joining us for The Land of the Unsolved. <laughs>